take your scriptures if you would go back to those two passages in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27 and 28 that we read a little earlier. I don't know if you've noticed, but Hollywood has made a lot of big money off of movies which have to do with natural disasters. And there's a lot of them. Disaster films about tornadoes, tidal waves, tsunamis, meteors colliding with the earth and threatening to annihilate civilization. I mean, there are avalanches, hurricanes, volcanoes. But the number one of all natural disasters on Hollywood's agenda seems to have been earthquakes. In the last 30 years, there have been 10 movies all about earthquakes. Megafault was one of them, Aftershock, 10.0, San Andreas, the most recent perhaps, but there are a lot of them out there. And most of them uh, take place, I have read, in Southern California, and that's because that state is waiting for what they call or term the big one. Uh, the big one is an earthquake of 7.8 or more on the Richter scale. And if you know anything about measuring earthquakes, that would be a huge one. There has been, actually, a 9.5 earthquake that took place in Chile, which was the biggest one in recorded history. And they're thinking that it could be someday even a 10 that would pretty much annihilate most of everything in California. I mean, the power and the magnitude is such a degree that it would change the lives of millions. You see, obviously, earthquakes are not just something that takes place on the big screen in a movie theater. They take place in real life. Earthquakes have been happening, and you're aware of this, all throughout history and just about every place in the world. Um, the Bible, if you're not aware, has also recorded a number of earthquakes of its own. Uh, Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, Zechariah 14.5 talks about the big earthquake that seems to be a marker in history for them in the time of the reign of King Uzziah. I mean, and there are a lot of earthquakes in the Bible, but most of the time when the Bible talks about earthquakes, or as the Bible language goes, earth shakes, that's pretty much the way, or trembling is the word they use, it often is not just depicting a physical phenomenon. It's actually something more. It's about God. Earthquakes are about God and His voice when He speaks, as the psalmist says. It talks about His presence being among uh, people and their trembling as if they were having a life quake of their own. It talks about His anger and His wrath against sin and the judgment that's coming. There's a lot of things, spiritually speaking, uh, far, far more than physically speaking, that are associated with earthquakes. So much that I would say to you this morning that you really could see earthquakes in Scripture as markers of very, very significant events, especially in redemptive history. So in other words, when we read earthquakes in Scripture, and our text is no different today, we shouldn't think physical seismology. Seismology is the study of earthquakes. Not so much physical seismology, but rather spiritual seismology. And in Matthew, in that type of a framework, we could say the writer of this gospel is a spiritual seismologist. And he has in his gospel recorded for us some very strong spiritual seismic activity that's taking place during the life of Jesus. In fact, can I point them out to you this morning? There are four different times that the Greek word seismos, which we get seismology from, which we get our earthquake word in English from, 
are mentioned in Jesus' ministry in this very gospel. Let me point them out and build up to our text. Turn to chapter 8 in Matthew's gospel, if you would, in verse 24. I'm sure if you are a Bible reader, you're probably somewhat familiar with this text when the disciples are trying to cross the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is there with them. And in chapter 8 and verse 24, it says, Behold, there arose a great storm. Now, in the English, you can't see it. And we think of storms usually as obviously wind and waves, and it certainly is. But the Greek word for storm is seismos. We might call this a sea quake. And in other words, the waters are so choppy and so hard and so difficult to control that they fear that they're going to be destroyed by it. It's really a sea quake taking place. It says the boat was about to be swamped, but Jesus is asleep. Now, it, interesting in the text, and this is a good because this is the first, can I say, tremor, spiritual tremor that's taking place as it points to Easter. It says that this shaking is going on and their boat has become violently shaken by the winds and the waves. And it says the storm arose, but the same exact word arose that speaks of the sea quake in verse 26, if you look there, also speaks of Jesus. As the storm arose and shook, shook so violently, it says Jesus was sleeping and he arose. He got up and it says he rebukes it, the winds and the sea. And it goes from great storm, mega storm, to mega calm. See, here's what you got to learn. Here's a principle I want to put in place because we're going to need it in a few minutes. Would you follow me? Here's the principle that, see, earthquakes, seismic activity of a spiritual nature in Scripture always tells us something about who Jesus is. Let me just tell you what the disciples found out that day. They see the great seismic storm on the sea, and then Jesus arises, and there's a great calm, and here's what their response is in verse 27. It says, what sort of man is this? Who is Jesus? Now, these are people who have been traveling and living and serving with Jesus, and they still don't know who he really is. What sort of man is this that the, even the winds and the sea obey him? He's not your ordinary man. There's something more to it. And this tremor, this pre-Passover tremor, is beginning to give us a little bit of an idea or a clue who he really is. The second one, if you'll turn there, is in the Olivet Discourse, it's so-called, in Matthew chapter 24. See, these are past events from Easter, but let me frame it with a future event, a seismic activity that Jesus prophesies that will take place in the future and when he comes again. And in Matthew chapter 24, here's what the verse 7 reads. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines, notice, and earthquakes. And so here's what Jesus says. See, whenever God is doing something great and particularly through Jesus, there's going to be spiritual seismic activity. He says, that's what happened when I calmed the, wa the, the water and the sea and the winds. He says, and in the future, there'll be signs that something great is beginning to take place again and it will be accompanied by earthquakes because you're going to learn, they're going to learn that Jesus is really who he says he is who he says he was when he comes back in his glory. You see, there are earthquakes in Matthew's prophecy. If you read the book of Revelation and the, the ultimate end of our age and our world in that sense is that there are four earthquakes in the book of Revelation. And here's what you find. Revelation or earthquake is about revealing who Jesus is. See, I don't know if you knew this or not, but on September 9th, just last year, there was an earthquake in New Jersey. 
3.1 on the Richter scale. Now, it was central Jersey. I, did you feel it? Do you remember it? Okay, I don't know where I was. I was asleep or something. But it, it was 3.1. Now, 3.1 is nothing compared to 10, but it says, I read the article, it shook people up a little bit. They weren't ready for it. But see, see, let me tell you this. There's an earthquake greater than that taking place. And that was on the day that Jesus died and rose again. And that's really the last two. Can you turn back to our text? See, the first two little vignettes, can I say, little scenarios, they're just tremors. They're just what the, the seismologists call foreshocks. But they're foreshocks because the main shock is coming. And that's what these last two Easter, oh, I call it Easter quakes, put together. Now, they happen three days apart, but the Bible's very clear, and Matthew goes out of his way to connect these two because they go together. And they take place, can I say this, the epicenter of these Easter quakes take place right there in the heart of the capital of Israel in Jerusalem, the very place that God's redemptive story is going to come to a climax. And, and notice with me and how Matthew very, very clearly puts them together because both of these earthquakes are introduced by the little word behold. Now in the Bible, just like today, when you say behold, you don't say it casually. You're looking to get someone's attention. You're looking to cause them and say, hey, this is not an ordinary event. There's something amazing going. You can't miss the import of what Matthew wants to say. In fact, it's so strong that in chapter 28 alone, he uses the word six times. Behold, six different times. You know why? Because these are the two greatest events in all of history. These are life-changing events. We could say this, this is the Bible big one. This is the Bible big one. This is the spiritual big one that can shake your life, change your life, not just for now, but for eternity. And that's what I would tell you this morning, if you have ears to hear. Easter demands a seismic shift in your life if you are going to rightly relate to God. Let me say it again. Easter demands, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, a seismic shift in your life has to take place if you are going to properly know and relate to God. Let me unpack just briefly these two earthquakes and show you how God wants to change your life this morning. Let's look at them one at a time. The first one, Matthew 27, it's the earthquake that, quake that took place or the Easter quake at the cross. You know it's Good Friday. And the earthquake takes place, but it takes place after Jesus has already hung on the cross for six hours. And as John gospel, John's gospel tells us that toward the very last few moments of his life, Jesus cries, it is finished. And when he does, he immediately gives up his spirit and he dies and he yields up his spirit. And so it's an Easter quake. It's a God quake. It's the most important event of history. And as a result, as Greg so well portrayed for us this morning. The centurion was watching it, all of it. He was watching the cross death. And here's some of the things that he sees as a result of Jesus dying. In verse 51 it reads of chapter 27, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And that verb is passive. And I know that doesn't seem like it's important, but it is. In other words, someone is doing the tearing. Someone's doing the tearing. And, and notice in the text, because the order of it's crucial, the curtain was torn first and then the earthquake. So you can't look at the text and say, well, it must have been the amazing earthquake that took place that tore the, tent, the, the curtain from top. No, that's not it, because the Bible says that the earthquake took place second. 
But the veil or the curtain was torn first. So what we have to understand is this amazing event, event of the, the curtain being torn in two was not natural. It was supernatural. And what we have to ask, right? Let's put our principle into practice. Earthquakes tell us what? They tell us something about who Jesus is. Let's figure out who he is. Because God, because of his death, has torn himself, the curtain, from top to bottom. Now, you have to know a little bit about the Holy of Holies. In the temple, there were sections cordoned off, and only you could go so far depending on who you were. We might say today that if you went in the temple to worship God, there was a religious hierarchy, right? There were a pecking order, to use 21st century language. There were degrees of holiness. And if you were a Gentile, you could be in the outer court. And if you were the court of the women, you could go so far. And then the court of the men, you could go a little closer to the Holy of Holies. And then the court of the priest, you could go a little further. And then you could go in here if you had work in that holy place. But only the high priest, one man, one time a year, on Yom Kippur, could go into the Holy of Holies, make a sacrifice for all the people. But you couldn't get where God's presence was. You couldn't get close to him, only one person, once a year. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, it says the very temple, curtain, that separated the Holy of Holies from all the other parts of the temple, that curtain that stood for the division between God and man because of our sin. And if you looked at the temple curtain, it had cherubim embroidered into it. And why were the angels embroidered? Because they were the ones guarding the Garden of Eden because man wasn't allowed back into God's presence because he forfeited it because of sin. And since God in the garden had banished man, he was devising a plan and putting into practice that would allow us to come back into his presence again. But until that plan had been finished, we were separated from God. And that curtain represents that separation because of our sin. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn by God in two. And this curtain was so big, it was 60 feet high, it was four inches thick. It was fashioned from blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. And it was so large, it was so large that it took 300 priests to take it down and to clean it. It, was, it measured 200 square meters of fabric. Now, for that size of a curtain to be torn in two, it wasn't an earthquake. It was God. But why, Pastor Walker? You just told me that God's the one who put the curtain up. God's the one who says you can't come into my presence because of sin. So if God put the curtain there and we're still sinners, then why would he ever tear it apart? Because there's a message in that phenomenon. There's a message when the earthquake signals what? Tell me something about Jesus. And there's something significant in redemptive history taking place. What is it? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. Look at the verse. It's on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 reads this. And behold... The curtain of the temple, go ahead. Well, we're going to turn, go all the, the, therefore, thank you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, keep going, there you go. By the new and living way that he opened for us through this curtain that is, look at it, through his flesh. What does the curtain represent? Well, we know something about Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross. And here's how God could tear the curtain because he tore his son first. 
See, that's the message. Who is Jesus? He is the sacrifice for our sins. We don't need any more sacrifices. We don't need someone once a year to go into the presence of God and make a sacrifice because Jesus' body and flesh on the tree was the sacrifice. He's the one who made the atonement for our sin. And here's the seismic shift that you have to make in your life. You know how you're right with God? Jesus. You know how you can enter God's presence? Jesus. Not because we're religious, not because you're Baptist, not because you're Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian or any other denomination or religion, not because of any of those things. See, in the temple, there was a religious pecking order, right? There was women, Gentiles, women, men, priests, high priests. See, the more you got closer to the thing, the more holy you were. But see, that's not true. That's not true anymore. See, Jesus' death when he died on the cross opened the way for everyone. And it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or you're not a pastor, whether you're religious or you're not religious, not whether you're moral or you're immoral. See, we all come to God the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through his death, his payment on the cross for our sins, which means this, you can't earn it. It's not anything that you do to merit God's favor. Pastor Walker, yeah, but I'm trying to be the best I can. And you should. We're human beings. We're try- I'm trying to do it. You know what? Hey, Pastor Walker, I'll admit, I do mess up sometimes. But hey, I try to make up for it. And if you saw, I did some pretty nice things over this weekend. And I'm glad for that. But can I tell you this? That won't make you right with God. That will not atone for your sin. You can do all the good that you want to do. But if you're, when you're a sinner... Good doesn't outweigh bad. And this is not a comparison between you and someone else. See, it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done. See, Jesus paid for your sins, my sins, the sins of all those who have put their faith and trust in him. And that means this. He paid for all the lies you've ever done. He prayed for all, all the lustful looks that you've done, the sinful desires that were out of control in your heart, for all the deeds and the actions and the things that you've done that have disobeyed his word, the things in private that nobody saw that you've done, the things in public that you've done that were wrong, all of the th- times that you did what was wrong and all the times that you did not do what was right see he paid for all of them in his body Peter says in 1 Peter 2 he bore our sins in his body on the tree and God could tear down the separation wall and invite us back in as we sing into paradise how because of Jesus sacrifice in his body he took your sin he made the payment for your sin on the cross but can I tell you this he opened the holy of holies for us The Bible says as a result of that, this this is what the centurion saw. And then he says the graves were opened. Now nobody came out of them until it says three days later when Jesus rose. But here's what he said. Here's what the cross of Jesus does. This is how earthquaking, shattering it is. See, he opens the holy of holies and we have access to God. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Not only was the holy of holies open, but the graves were open. And not only the graves were open, but it's even more than that. And this is where it gets personal. Verse 54 reads, So when the centurion saw the earthquake, see, he saw, he got, he saw beyond the physical reality of the earth shaking. See, God brought the earthquake into his life to bring a life quake into his heart. He saw the earthquake, listen, and the things that happened. He saw, 
He understood. He realized what had happened in the temple. He knew that the curtain had come down. He saw that the graves were opening, and he's getting it. He's putting it together. He sees the redemptive history significance of what's happening, and the earthquake is causing a life quake in his life. Here's why. Because the cross changes everything. For this man, it changed his whole world. It had turned everything that he thought he knew upside down. For him, listen, for him, the son of God was Caesar in Rome. See, when Julius Caesar was assassinated and his son took his place, his adopted son, Augustus said, oh, there's Julius Caesar as a meteor went through this. He's going to be going up into heaven as a son of God. See, it was the Caesar who was a man who had become of God. And for the Son of God, in his mind, the definition was the guy had power. The guy had might. He had all these things going for him. He had a name. Everybody knew who he was. He was authoritative. See, that's for him with the Son of God. But that day, that day, he watched Jesus die. And it turned his definition of who the Son of God really was completely upside down. And see, you come to church and you think, oh, I know who Jesus is. He's a really good teacher. And you know what I can tell you? He's a really great life example. And he did a lot of great moral things. And he healed some people. And he, yeah, wow, I mean, Jesus is someone certainly that you'd want to take time to emulate in your life. Can I tell you? He's more than that. And when you really know, and when you really come to know who he is, it'll turn your world upside down. When you discover who he really is. And this guy says, I thought son of God was this. Power, position, Caesar, and then I saw Jesus. Cross, weakness, death, shame. And I took them and both of them and I compared them side by side. I've seen the one and I've now seen the other. And here's my conclusion. Not this one, but this one. Jesus, he's the true son of God. See, it shook up his world. It changed everything in his life. You know, there's only one other time in Matthew's gospel that this little phrase, this statement, this revelation is ever said, truly, this was the Son of God. And in Matthew 14, 33, it's the Peter and the disciples. They say it after Jesus calms the storm a second time in this gospel. Here's what it says. They stand up and they look at Jesus. Truly, this was the Son of God. Now see, Jewish men say it, and we go, we get it. They understand because they have a background in the Bible and they know who Jesus was promised to be and they understand the King and the Messiah. They understand all the theology. See, so when Jewish people say it, we understand it. But when the Roman centurion, who has none of that background, has not been with Jesus and he says the exact same statement, we know that something significant has taken place. So here's what the cross does and here's why there was an earthquake. And it means this, because it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you know Jesus or you never knew him before. It doesn't matter because God opens holy of holies. He opens graves and he opens eyes. He opens the eyes of people to see. And perhaps this morning, if you think about it, maybe that's why you were brought here. Maybe God designed it by an invitation of someone who invited you to come this morning or maybe you watched on TV or I don't know how you got here but let me tell you this maybe God brought you here this morning because he wants to by his spirit give you eyes to see that who Jesus really is and what he did on that cross and what it means for your life see he's the only way that's what the centurion realized 
This is the Son of God. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. The words of Jesus still ring true when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. My friend Justin Black, who was a gang member in the Crips downtown Trenton when I met him, he was a drug dealer, had been in prison for over a decade. And he came to Mosaic Baptist Church when we first started. And I remember him coming and talking. And I went out with him and his girlfriend who were on heroin. And talking to them over and over a bit about the gospel. And I remember the day when it was just him and I in the church downtown. They said, I finally figured it out, Pastor Walker. And I said, what? He says, I really know who Jesus is now. He's not who I thought he was. And I said, who do you think he is? He goes, he's the son of God. Now for Justin to say that, that's radical. And Justin got saved and trusted Jesus Christ that day. I remember it as if it happened yesterday. He was a deacon in our church and his life has been radically changed, radically changed. He dropped out of being a gang. He stopped selling drugs and all the illegal things he was doing and his life has been changed and he seeks God and serves him to this day. All by God's grace. You know why? Because God opens eyes. Ted Levesky, his wife was pregnant. He was on drugs. And he was very angry with me because I told him he needed to stop taking drugs and to take care of his wife that was pregnant. He didn't want me to tell him that. And so one day when she was in the hospital, and actually she had come to live in our house for a while because he couldn't or wouldn't take care of her, she was in the hospital not very long till she was going to have the baby. And he came in. And he was high as he, you know, whatever. I remember. And I'm sitting in the chair next to his wife talking to her. And he starts going off. And I told him, I think time, it's time, Ted, that you just leave. Oh, he took his wedding ring off and threw it at me in the room. I remember that day. But I also remember the day not too long afterwards that Ted received the gospel and became a Christian. You know why? Because he figured out who Jesus really was. He changed his, it changed his life. They're married and had kids. And let me tell you, it changed everything about Ted. Bill Zoller was an atheist and he came in to counsel because his wife and other family members knew about our church. He says, I heard that you would counsel me. And I said, I'd be glad to. He goes, I just want to get through. I, I need to make my, my marriage better. I said, I'll counsel you as long as you let me tell you about Jesus the last 15 minutes. You get 45 for your marriage, 15 for Jesus. He goes, I'll, it's a deal. So the first time I did the 45 minutes, he was listening, but then the last 15 minutes, I told him about Jesus. As soon as it was done, he goes, oh, thank you. And he was gone. He wasn't interested in the last 15 minutes. The second time, he listened. And he heard the 15 minutes. And the third time, we counseled, and the 15 minutes was over, I looked at Bill Zoller and he was starting to cry. Pastor Walker, you know what? I know why my marriage is a problem. I go, why? That was a breakthrough, at least in counseling. He said, because I don't know Jesus. I said, you're right. And Bill Zoller, an atheist, with tears in his eyes, when I was in that office, got on his knees by my desk and called on Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. Changed his life. Why? Because they figured out who he was. It was an Easter quake in that office. See, God shook up his life. He came to the realization for the first time, oh, I get it now. 
I get it. The cross is not just something you wear as an emblem around your neck. It's not just a piece of jewelry. It's a life-changing, shaking event. Pastor Walker, okay, I get it, I get it. I, I got the reason for the first cross. It destroys the separation of sin between God and I. But how does it become a reality in my life? What is the second earthquake for? Well, would you turn to the chapter 28? I have a few minutes left because I know when the time goes off, there'll be another earthquake here, so I have to be done. Chapter 28, the second earthquake. How do they connect? Remember, they both begin with behold. Because they both are connected. They go together. It's not one and the other, or one or the other. They're both together. They have to be. And the second one is introduced in verse 2 with behold. Behold, there was a great earthquake. And the word great is added. It's the word mega. This is the big one, we'd say. The Bible big one. This one doesn't happen at the cross. It happens three days later at the tomb. Now, I've had the privilege of going to Israel, and I've stood at the site where they say that this could be, probably not for sure, this could be the tomb that Jesus rose from. And it's a wonderful experience, whether it is the actual tomb or not. It is exhilarating to say that within a vicinity of where you're standing, that this day when it occurred happened there. It it is amazing. But it couldn't have been nearly as amazing as the day it took place. The earthquake marks the greatest event Heaven and earth were connected by an angelic visit. And the tomb is opened, and they roll back the stone, and the verse says this, and the angel sat on it. When you, set on, when you sit on something in the Bible, like you sit on a throne, and you say, you are the one who has conquered. It's proven that you have the victory. It's an authoritative, symbolic statement. And the angel is saying, as he sits on the tomb, that Jesus has conquered. Listen, listen. Not just sit on the cross. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered death. He did not need the angelic power or strength to do it because when the stones rolled away and he invites the women into the tomb, look at verse 6, it says he's not here. See, he's already been gone. I'm only moving the stone so that you can see that he's not here. You know why? Because Jesus in and of himself has the power over sin and death. It's already empty. He opened the grave And he can open your grave too. Aren't you happy that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, they did not say, I am finished? See, he he said it is finished, but he didn't say, I am finished. You know why? Because three days later, he rose from the grave. And these earthquakes put together that this is what, see, you can conquer sin and you can conquer death and you don't have to be afraid of it anymore if you know Jesus. If you've come to the realization of who he is and what he's done and what his cross, death, and resurrection mean, see, it's the only hope that you have. If you put your faith and trust in what Jesus did. Now, what would that look like? Can I tell you just briefly before we close? At both of these earthquakes, if you look at them very carefully, both of them have these two groups of people, soldiers, Roman soldiers, and women. Now, why is that important as we close? Roman soldiers have power, they have position, they have influence. They are on the upper level escalon of Israel society because they are in charge. But the women, 
They're on the lower end of it. They have no power. They have no position. They don't have any say. They don't have any influence. Now, here's what Matthew chooses to do because this is spiritual seismology. Here's how your life is, here's how it's shaken up. You know why? Because it's not the Roman soldiers that the angel talks to when they are greatly afraid. And by the way, the word tremble in verse four describing the soldiers when they see the angel, believe it or not, it's the same word seismos. When they tremble, they are having an earthquake inside. When they see the earthquake or hear the earthquake, that earthquake on the outside gets on the inside and they are so afraid they drop over like, here's what it says, like dead men. Now let me see. I read books on Roman soldiers and here's the number one thing they teach you, that you never, never fall on the ground and, and lose your standing. In other words, the ability to stand up and fight is the number one thing. Don't ever let yourself go to the ground. That's the first and most important rule. And can I tell you, the power of Jesus' resurrection blew them off their feet. They were so afraid, mega afraid, that they were having an earthquake on the inside. Not the women. The women were afraid. They saw the same thing. And at first they were terrified too. We all would be. But there's a difference. The angel, not to the soldiers, but to the women, says, don't be afraid. You seek Jesus. And here are the two best three-word phrases in the whole Bible. Who was crucified, he is risen. Was crucified. Isn't that a great thing? That's the best past tense verb in history. He was, yes, he did die. But can I tell you, he paid for your sins and his body. He tore the curtain down for you. He made the payment for your sins. But here's what, he's risen. And you know what that means? There's hope. That there's life. And if you put your trust in Jesus, he's the true son of God. See, there's hope that you can be forgiven. And see, you don't have to be powerful in position. See, it is for the powerful and those in high authority. But you see, even the lower class, see, it doesn't matter how high you are in society, how low you are, how much money you have, how good you've been. See, all of that has been obliterated. The death and resurrection, forgiveness of sins, being made right with God is for anyone and everyone Black or white, male or female, white collar, black collar, young, old, rich, poor. See, God says, that's salvation that I have given through my son is available to all who will put their faith and trust in him. The soldiers had fear and they were stuck in it. They fell over in it. But God took the fear of the women and transformed it into great fear. And it says in the verse, great joy, great joy in 28 and verse 8. The only other time the Bible uses a little phrase, great joy, is back when the Magi in Matthew 2.10 were seeking after Jesus and they saw the star when he was a baby. And it says that when they saw it, they had mega joy. Both those instances are people who have great joy because they're seeking Jesus, one at his birth and one at his death. See, God can do that for you. He can take your fears, the fear of dying, the fearing that you're inadequate, the fearing that your sin and your life is never going to be good enough, the fear that you don't measure up, the fear of the fact that who in the world, would God ever really want me to be in his family? See, God says in all those fears that you have and more, I can transform them from great fear to great joy if you will seek me, if you'll come after me. 
Now that's impossible, Romans 3 says on your own, but God may be working in your heart through his spirit to bring you here this morning, and he's been working in you, and he's been moving you to seek him. And this morning, he's revealed this to you. He's shaking up your life, that Jesus is not an add-on. He's not just an accessory. He's not just something to get you out of your troubles that you're in. He is the king and Lord of all who died and rose again. See, he wants to come in to save you and to take over your life and be your Lord and your master. He wants you to put your hope and faith in him alone for your eternal life. Titus 1-2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Real story, and I'll close. Armand was a little boy, and he was about 8 or 10 years old. In Armenia, and Armenia that day was going to have a, an earthquake that measured 7.8 on the Richter scale. It was massive. They didn't know that, and Armand's dad, like he always did, dropped him off at school. He drove across town. He pulled up to the front of the school. He opened the door. They would say their goodbyes, and he would go off to school, and then his father would come and pick him up at the end of the day, like many of you do. That day, his dad said, hey, Armand, I'll be back to get you no matter what. I promise I'll be here, so you just come out when you're done. He is, the words he'd said a bunch of times, didn't think anything of it, until two hours later, after he dropped his son off at school, the earthquake hit, and when it did, the infrastructure of our, that town in Armenia collapsed. Every major building, homes, schools, destroyed. Armand's dad didn't know what to do. He did what any father would do. He got in his car and raced across town trying to get to his home because he wanted to find out if his wife was okay. He couldn't get all the way because the, the uh, area that he lived was barricaded. There are police cars, fire engines, all kinds of medical people around. And so he got out of his car, left the door open, ran a number of blocks, turned down the street and to see that his house was devastated, but his wife was standing in the front yard. Oh, the relief that washed over him was incredible. He thought the earthquake had taken his wife, but he was so grateful to see her. He hugged her and kissed her, and he said, I can't stay. He goes, I'm going across town. I've got to find our boy Armand. It took him almost an hour to get across town. Finally, again, within blocks of the school, he couldn't get any closer. He left his car, ran to the school, and to his utter dismay, when he went around the corner and saw the school, it was flattened like a pancake. There was literally nothing left of it. There were parents there. They were crying. They were screaming. People were looking for their children. There were explosions from gas pipes. It was a terrible mess. He didn't know what to do, so he just thought in his mind, his son's school was on the very back right part of the building, so he started to make his way over there, getting through the crowd of people, all the way to the back of the building. He was told by officers and firemen, you can't stay here. It's too dangerous. There are explosions. There are fires. You can't listen. If we find your son, we'll call you. That wasn't good enough. Armand's dad wouldn't be satisfied with that because the words popped into his mind and what he said to his son, I promise I'll come back and get you. And so he intended to keep his word and so he began to do what you could do, move, removing stones that he thought was near where his son's room would have been. And he did it for an hour, two hours, five hours, ten hours, most people are starting to leave and go home, but not Armand's dad. 12 hours, 18 hours. No sleep, no food. 24 hours, 
36 hours later. He turns over with the help of another person because by this time he was exhausted. He moved over what would be the biggest rock that he overturned and it was covering a small janitor's closet that would have been outside the room of his son's classroom. It was pitch dark and he yelled down, is anyone there? And the first voice he heard was his son. He said, dad, is that you? He goes, I told everyone else down here, all 12 of his classroom mates or pupils were in there with him. I told him that you come. I told him that my dad keeps his promises. See, he had put his hope in that. He put his trust that his dad who gave him his word would come back and save him in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised. See, you have the promise of eternal life. If you put your faith, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you'll repent of your sins and you'll say to the Father, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and my only hope is Jesus' cross, death, and resurrection as payment for my sins. See, Jesus says, if you'll give me your life and surrender to me, that hope and that promise can be yours by faith. Earthquakes, Easter quakes, they change everything. The question is, have they changed you? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, in just a few moments we're going to sing a song as we close our service. But perhaps you're here with no one looking around, with your head bowed and eye closed. You say, Pastor Walker, listen, I know who Jesus is. I've heard about him. I'm not unfamiliar with the Bible. I've been to church on occasion. Or maybe you've come all the time. Maybe you're religious or you're not religious. Maybe you say, I don't have a good track record in life. Maybe you think that you're very righteous on your own. Can I tell you this? You need Jesus no matter which one of those two you are. We're all sinners and we need a Savior. And Jesus' death in our place is your only hope. And he's promised eternal life. If you will humble yourself, admit that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and that his death and resurrection is the only hope that you have to be right with God. With no one looking around, would there be some who would say, Pastor Walker, I don't really know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But I need to. I want to. With no one looking, would you just raise your hand because I'm just, I don't know your name, but I'll, I want to pray for you as the, ser- the service closed today. Would you slip your hand up real quick and put it right back down and say, Pastor Walker, in the main floor of the balcony, pray for me. I need to know Jesus personally by faith as my Lord and Savior. I need that Easter quake to change my life. Anyone, while we wait just a moment, put it right up and put it right back down and I'll pray for you. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Just slip it up real quick and put it down and I'll pray for you in a moment. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? We'll be here after the service. I'll be down front if you'd like to talk with someone who can take the Bible and show you how today that you can know your sins are forgiven and that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You can do that today yet before you leave. You can give a call and come in and we'll talk to you during the week. Please don't put off the most important decision that you'll ever make. Father, Thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for Easter quakes. Thank you, Lord, that you're willing to come into this world and shake up our world. 
so that we can fully and truly understand who you are and what you've done. I pray for those who raised their hand and for those who needed to but did not. They're still living in fear, fear of what someone else might say. Would you transform their fear into faith? They might come to know him, Jesus, who is truly the Son of God. For it's in his matchless name I pray. Amen.